and welcome to Extrapolator. I'm your host, Jeff Allen, and today's episode tackles a big, juicy problem in analytic philosophy. And it will be great fun, although the topic is quite technical. But this is only because the problems are abstract as opposed to concrete. And by that I mean these are not problems that you will encounter when walking down the street, but they are still problems that need solutions. And this episode will also be amusingly ambitious. It's going to be a two-parter, since there's simply too much to cover in one go. So next week I'll pick up this discussion and round off the second half. I'm going to attempt to tackle many problems under one umbrella. Kind of a two birds, one stone scenario. Or even five birds, one stone. It's a pretty big stone, hopefully. And these five birds are the self, free will, intentionality, the flow of time, and the meaning of life. Okay, more slowly, the self, free will, intentionality, the flow of time, and even the meaning of life. This sounds like a shopping list of unresolved debates in philosophy, but I'm going to unite these five topics under one umbrella. What these topics have in common is that they each pose a challenge for modern science. In each case, there is a similar need to reconcile third-person science with the first-person subjectivity of human life. The descriptions given by empirical science do not match the human experiences of the self, free will, the flow of time, and so on. Free will is commonly cited in this context. We, as human beings, all have this subjective sense of agency. We feel in control of our actions and even our thoughts, and as we move through the world, we make active choices that shape the trajectories of our lives. But there's a problem. We can't exactly find physical evidence for this feeling of agency. The first-person experience of free will is not aligned with the third-person descriptions of physics and biology. From an empirical point of view, human behaviour and human action seem completely determined by our biology and our environment. When we zoom in to the level of fundamental physics, there seems to be a complete causal picture of atoms interacting with atoms and that leaves no place for any free choice. There is no non-physical or quasi-spiritual input from human agents that changes anything about our interactions with the world. So human choices don't seem to exist and they don't seem to be evidenced in the language of physics. To make matters worse, when we look at quantum mechanical systems involving electrons and other fundamental particles, the interactions don't even appear to be deterministic. There is no evidence of causes and effects, like a kick causing a ball to move, as happens in the macro world. Instead, things happen stochastically, on the basis of probabilities, as opposed to deterministically, on the basis of causes and effects. But let's not trouble ourselves with quantum mechanics. At the level of the human body, there appears to be no place for free will. Our actions, just like the actions of any animal, are motor impulses from the brain and nervous system. Our behaviour appears to be fully determined, either by the environment or by biology. Again, leaving no place for free choices. How could free choices influence biology or influence atoms and electrons? So, that is the problem. We have to reconcile two worlds, 
the first-person experience of human life, and the third-person descriptions of empirical science. And my teaser for the rest of the episode is, I will outline a possible way to reconcile the experience of free will with the descriptions of science. So I just took free will as an example, but the same problem arises in many other cases. So we each experience a self, an I or an identity that makes each of us who we are. In the story of my life, I am the star. I am the author of my actions, and I have a distinct self, distinct from the world around me. And this poses an equal problem for reconciling human experience with empirical science. But the flow of time is perhaps the most fun of all. Since a young age, I've been a big fan of sci-fi, which is, of course, thanks to my parents. In my youth, I was even subjected to many years of Doctor Who, which is incredibly low-budget and cheesy, but it's full of fun time-travel puzzles. I'm glad to say that my interest in the philosophy of time is more academic these days. I've studied the metaphysics of space and time. But I have to say that many films are very smart about their use of time travel, like Interstellar, Looper, and even Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The problem about the flow of time is the old, familiar, first-person versus third-person dichotomy. We all have a first-person subjective experience of time as flowing. It always moves forwards, always in the same direction at the same rate. And we're stuck on this fucking conveyor belt that moves us steadily forwards into the future, piling more and more things into our past. We can't get off. There's nothing outside the conveyor belt, and there's no stop button, or reverse button for that matter. It seems like the flow of time is objective, it's just the way the universe is. But <laughs> enter third-person physics. According to relativity theory, time is just a dimension, like the spatial dimensions. And there is no evidence for a now or a present, any more than there is a here in space. There's no evidence that time flows in any way. It's just a static reality, in the same way that space doesn't flow or move. It's simply a static backdrop, or a field or a relation between bodies. And the arrow of time is puzzling. For us, time not only flows, but it flows in one direction. The steam rises as the kettle boils, and a vase shatters if it's dropped on the ground. There is an asymmetry to these events. You can't unshatter a vase or unboil a kettle. There is an arrow of time, sometimes called the thermodynamic arrow of time, because it dictates the one-directedness of thermodynamic events. Entropy increases over time. For this episode, let's just focus on our experience of the flow of time. That is what we need to reconcile with the empirical picture of time as static. So these are the problems that are part of my overall umbrella. First-person experience versus third-person science. This project of aligning philosophy or phenomenology with science is referred to as naturalized or naturalizing or naturalistic. Scientific descriptions are naturalistic in that they refer only to natural entities and processes, which means no supernatural metaphysical or non-physical claims. And please don't be distracted by my use of the term natural here. 
I don't mean it in the sense of pure or native, which I worked to refute in episode 3. I simply mean natural as opposed to supernatural. Scientific descriptions can't refer to the supernatural. Obviously, they can't refer to ghosts. But many other things are out of bounds. We're talking no souls, no gods, no spooky non-physical forces. Nothing spooky or fishy or wacky, full stop. This is another common move in philosophy. You know, morality because God. Or free will because the indivisible spirit of human freedom. Right. How do we justify political freedoms and human rights? Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. End quote. And the Irish constitution is no better. Quote, All powers of government, legislative, executive and judicial, derive under God from the people. End quote. There is a justification for human rights, but that justification is terrestrial. It's found here on Earth. Anyway, there is much naturalizing to be done. We need to naturalize our political philosophy and our morality and our whole bloody outlook on the world. So what does naturalizing mean for our present examples? The self, free will, the flow of time. We must account for these without referring to souls, without referring to spooky, non-physical forces that by definition can't be observed or tested. If we are to accept a scientific picture of reality, then it must be possible to account for each of these things in purely naturalistic terms. And if you disagree with this premise, if you think that God or astrology or healing crystals are equally fair game, then I'm afraid we're coming from very different starting places, and I'm not sure if our accounts will ever align. But for the most part, I hope you can agree with my starting place. I hope you're excited by this challenge of naturalizing traditional philosophical debates, like free will and time. There is a puzzle in that we do have these subjective experiences, which are sometimes at odds with empirical science. And the correct response is not to reject science altogether, appealing to some kind of spooky soul. Rather, we must take up the challenge of reconciling empirical science with our subjective experiences of the self, free will, the flow of time, the meaning of life, and intentionality, which I'll come to later. John McDowell, a philosopher of mind, is greatly concerned by this conflict between first-person experience and third-person science. He fears the outcome if the scientific description wins out and quashes what we previously thought about human life. This quote nicely sums up McDowell's worries. Modern science understands its subject matter in a way that threatens at least to leave it disenchanted. End quote. So that is the product of a scientific outlook, apparently. A disenchanted view of nature, the world, and the universe. Reality is just physical atoms and biological processes and things happening at a descriptive level. They have no meaning or purpose or telos. 
In this disenchanted picture, there is no explanation for human freedom or subjective meaning or even shared intersubjective meaning. So McDowell needs to find a way to account for these experiences by reference to the disenchanted account of science. And he warns of the obvious pitfall. We can't regress into a pre-scientific superstition. We can't succumb to a crazily nostalgic attempt to re-enchant the natural world. But sadly, McDowell falls into his very own pitfall. His solution, very briefly, is what he calls naturalized Platonism. This holds that there is a space of reasons over and above the natural realm. And in this space of reasons, human freedom and human meaning can operate autonomously, outside the dictates of the natural world. McDowell claims that his account is naturalized, but he's broken the very first rule of naturalizing. He has introduced this spooky, non-physical realm outside the natural, physical realm, and that is where meaning and freedom reside, apparently. But how do these physical and non-physical worlds interact? We are supposed to be accounting for things in physical, naturalistic terms, a project that McDowell himself accepts, but he has already jumped the gun by introducing these very fishy, non-physical, even supernatural forces. You can see now how easy it is to jump the gun and start grasping at non-physical explanations. Naturalizing is hard. These phenomena are really difficult to explain in purely empirical terms. McDowell calls his solution naturalized Platonism. So this is a good time to introduce Plato and Platonism. Or should I say, a good time to do some Platonism bashing. I'm sure you've heard of the philosopher Plato, who lived in ancient Greece around the 4th century BCE. One of Plato's most famous ideas was his theory of forms, which is now referred to as Platonism. Platonism is the idea that there is a non-physical realm of perfect forms, and the material world only contains imperfect copies. So in Plato's non-physical world of forms, there exists the perfect triangle and the perfect horse, and when we look at the material world and recognise four-legged gallopy things as horses, this is by reference to the idea of the perfect horse, which exists antecedent to all physical horses. Platonism is wrong in that it is entirely backwards, in a way that Aristotle pointed out. There does not exist some idea of the perfect horse before we see and recognise physical horses in the world. Rather, we first see collections of four-legged gallopy things, and we then group these together conceptually and start to think of them as horses. We inductively infer the concept horse, and other concepts like triangle and red, through trial and error and sensory experiences in the world. So the issue with Platonism generally is that it grants existence to non-physical entities, which are supposed to exist somehow over and above the physical world, even antecedent to the physical world. And this is what McDowell does with his naturalized Platonism, trying to account for meaning and freedom as things that exist over and above the disenchanted physical reality. Platonism really grinds my gears because it's one of those fundamental category errors that I've talked about in, well, almost every episode so far. It makes the mistake of saying that meaning exists outside of human minds, objectively out there in the physical world. But in fact, 
meaning exists only inside human minds, subjectively or intersubjectively within a certain frame of reference. And I'll say more about this later. Platonism also makes the mistake of saying that concepts or ideas exist outside of human minds, out there in the world, before any experience or inductive inference. When really, concepts are subjective constructs of particular organisms from a certain frame of reference. Later on, I'll provide more detailed arguments and examples as to why meaning and concepts do not have some non-physical Platonistic existence, and why they exist only as frame-dependent constructs. But first, I want to ask the question, why do we care? What does it matter, or what are the implications if meaning is objective or subjective? Well, there are two broad implications. The first has to do with engineering. When we're building artificial systems, or if we're just building a model of the human brain, we have to know how and where information must be encoded. It makes a very big difference if concepts like horse are out there in the world, or if they are subjectively constructed by each brain. This insight about where the information resides makes a critical difference to our choice of cognitive architecture and to our choice of engineering methods generally. So that's why it's so important to ask the question, where does the information reside? Where does the meaning reside? Where is it located? What is the source of meaning? This question about the source of meaning is the title of this episode, since it works as an analogy for a much broader set of questions about where a specific phenomenon resides. Human freedom, the human self, meaning, the flow of time, our concepts about the physical world. Where does each phenomenon reside? Where is it located? What is the source? Answering these questions is important from a practical engineering perspective, but the second implication has to do with our wider conception of reality. I've stressed throughout this podcast that having a reasoned and empirically grounded conception of how reality is composed is essential for navigating the world, and for understanding the world correctly. Of course, this is one task that philosophy can usefully do, and it's perhaps the most important of all, since it sits behind everything else. When we correctly locate meaning, concepts, freedom, the flow of time, and so on, we correctly understand the subject-object distinction, which features exist independently of minds as part of physical reality, and which features are constructed by minds. This is a broader epistemological project, i.e. relating to knowledge and truth, which prevents us from making category errors about which things exist objectively and which things do not. It prevents us from thinking that everything is a construct, man, since electrons and climate change and inauguration crowds exist independently of how we choose to feel about them. It also prevents us from getting swept away by things that are not fixed. The euro and, well, God, were constructed by our minds for a particular purpose, and we have the power to change them. This broader conception of reality also opens up a range of very broad, more tentative implications about, let's say, the meaning of life. These are the wildest extrapolations that are made plausible by what we can say about the composition of reality. They will be tentative, but why not stretch out 
as far as possible, just for fun. The topic of the meaning of life is not rigorously philosophical in any way. People imagine that this is what philosophy is before they've come across much philosophy. A few of my friends started studying philosophy around the same time as me, when we were 18 and just out of school, but they dropped out after a few weeks. They thought that philosophy would involve more lying in the grass and talking about their feelings. But real, analytic philosophy, the type that we're doing right now and the type that's taught at many Western universities, is the very opposite of talking about your feelings. It involves procedural analysis and mapping analysis and extrapolating to new substance, as per my three functions from episode one. For the record, there is a competing tradition in philosophy, known as continental philosophy, which renounces the analytic methods, and which does involve large amounts of talking about your feelings, but it's one of those methods that gets you nowhere fast, in my opinion. I would classify continental philosophy as pissing into the wind. My honest assessment of continental philosophy is that it pursues a different norm of truth. The norm pursued by analytic philosophy, and by all empirical sciences, says that there are empirical regularities outside of human minds which can be accessed and investigated and described by suitably rigorous methods. Analytic philosophy is an honest attempt to latch on to mind-independent regularities and to describe the world as it exists outside of human minds. Continental philosophy, genuinely, does not seem interested in this project. For a start, many continental philosophers deny the existence of mind-independent truths. They are the camp that says, everything's a construct, man. So there's nothing objective that can be accessed or investigated or described. Overall, they seem more motivated by the pursuit of aesthetic or cultural value. I would put continental philosophy and literature in the same box. I half mean this to be insulting, but it might not have to be. Both literature and continental philosophy seem more concerned with capturing the ingenuity and expression of the human spirit, and so on. They are not aimed at describing mind-independent regularities, and they lack the tools to do so. So that's my opinion about continental philosophy, even though you didn't ask for it. By all means, read Heidegger, but you're just as well off reading Tolstoy or watching a good Netflix show, if you are looking for cultural truths as opposed to scientific truth. But back to the meaning of life. When I say that the meaning of life is not a rigorously philosophical topic, I mean that it does not exactly fit the criteria for a topic within the scope of empirical science or analytic philosophy. If you're wondering about the meaning of life, you would do just as well to consult Heidegger or Tolstoy or Black Mirror in search of cultural truths about human existence. But, perhaps, we can stick to our analytic starting place and still extrapolate to some tentative claims about the meaning of life. David Wiggins agrees that the question is unphilosophical, but he then attempts to answer it seriously. So, let's see whether by the end we can arrive at some insight about the meaning of life. I'm not promising that I can give a conclusive answer, but we can certainly have a stab at it.
Well, that felt like one really long introduction. It was more than an introduction, of course, but I only now feel like I've thoroughly explained myself. The project of naturalizing, the challenge of reconciling first-person experience with third-person science, and why we should care about it. Now we can get to the main body of the episode, the bit where I actually account for the self, free will, intentionality, the flow of time, and the meaning of life. Yeah, pretty ambitious. I'm going to approach this in two parts, because my solution has two parts. First, for the rest of this episode, I'm going to tackle the self and free will. And then next week, intentionality, the flow of time, and the meaning of life. My first solution has got to do with levels of description. I'll argue that the self and free will are emergent entities, which exist only at a sufficiently high level of description. They can't be accounted for in the language of fundamental physics, because they don't exist at the level of fundamental particles. Selves and free actions are not fundamental properties, but they rather emerge at higher levels of reality, when we consider human beings and other mammals as complex systems, when the organism is taken as a whole. My second solution has got to do with frames of reference. I'll argue that the flow of time, the meaning of life, and how we conceptualize the world around us, these are all frame-dependent phenomena. Organisms represent the world in a way that is relative to their own faculties and abilities. And there is evidence that a really wide range of organisms can represent themselves and the world in this egocentric way. So the point of all this is that things look different from inside a certain frame of reference. The flow of time, conceptualizing the world and the meaning of life, these can't be viewed from the outside. They don't exist from the outside, so to speak. Rather, they exist only within a certain frame of reference. They exist only within the frame of a certain organism. So a sense of time or a sense of meaning is a subjective construction which does not exist out there in the objective world. That is a sketch of my two-part solution. Part one, levels of description this week. Part two, frames of reference next week. So let's look at levels of description and sink our teeth into the self and free will. Free will is kind of a cheesy or dramatic label. It's often just called freedom or action. I suppose free will is the term most people are used to hearing, but I'll use it interchangeably with freedom and action, which all refer to the same puzzle. For this part, I'll be relying on some arguments from Janan Ismail, and in particular her book How Physics Makes Us Free. When I first discovered Ismail's work, she was definitely my new favourite philosopher for a good stretch, and I particularly love her naturalistic approach to philosophical topics. She writes about the philosophy of physics, quantum mechanics, time, the laws of nature, and she always brings this empirical mindset to traditional philosophical puzzles like self and action. A naturalistic account of the self starts with an evolutionary view of how a range of organisms navigate the world. Consider the human brain, 
or the brain of any mammal, bird or reptile. These are basically information processing systems. The self arises when the information coming through these neural pathways is integrated to form a unified representation of the surrounding environment, including possibilities for action and interaction. The phenomenon of the self, the thing that needs explaining, is the feeling of unity. The self feels like a fully integrated and synthesized subject at the center of our representation of the world. This unity of self is a well-known cornerstone of Immanuel Kant's account of the self from the 18th century. And it looks like biology and neuroscience are slowly describing how this unity might be possible. Of course, Ismail stresses that the complexity of self exists in degrees. According to evolution, these properties develop gradually and incrementally. So in a mouse, this faculty might be limited to primitive self-modelling and rudimentary map-keeping. A mouse can remember where it's been in a maze and can roughly locate itself in reference to the physical environment. These abilities get gradually souped up so that Homo sapiens can very extensively model the world. We can represent the past and the future, memory and prospection, and we have metacognition, so we can think about the fact that we're thinking and have higher order awareness of thoughts about thoughts. That was a broad sketch of how an adaptive ability to model the environment might account for the self. For a more detailed and forensic account, we can turn to a 2015 paper by Franco Fabro and his team, titled Evolutionary Aspects of Self and World Consciousness in Vertebrates. Fabro and his co-authors compare the brain structures of a wide range of vertebrates. Humans, other primates, other mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish. They argue that all vertebrates share a common two-system brain structure, a basal system and a forebrain system. And all vertebrates can represent self and world to some degree. Of course, these faculties appear gradually, so Fabro and his co-authors identify four levels of self-representation. Primary self, core self, self-consciousness, and lastly, narrative self. Only humans have all four of these faculties, and the narrative self is uniquely human. It involves unifying somewhat random, episodic memories into a coherent story that you tell yourself about who you are. It involves language and representing the past and the future, especially through autobiographical memories. But the next rung down, self-consciousness, is evidenced in a handful of other species. Chimpanzees, orangutans, dolphins, elephants, and even magpies. A classic test for this is whether an animal can recognise themselves in a mirror. You put a dot on their face and see if they try to rub it off, acknowledging that the mirror image is of themselves. Originally, these tests with elephants failed, but it turns out that we were simply using mirrors that were too small. Once we used a very large mirror and placed it into the enclosure so the elephant could see it from all sides, then the elephant responded to the dot on its face. Franz de Waal likes to remind us that we so often use the wrong test on other animals. We expect human norms or human ideas of intelligence. We want animals to use human-sized mirrors or to learn to copy human behaviour, 
rather than giving elephants elephant-sized mirrors or letting chimps learn from other chimps, as they have evolved to. That is Duval's central thesis about animal intelligence. If we judge other animals to be stupid, then we're probably applying the wrong test. The more basic forms of self, primary self and core self, are common to almost all vertebrates. This might simply involve an awareness or demarcation of the body compared to the external world, or at higher levels, map-like memory representation that encodes features of the environment and locates the self relative to those features. To explain why the self is emergent, we need to segue briefly to discuss complex systems. Complex systems generally are systems made up of large numbers of components. These interacting components give rise to emergent properties, which cannot be reduced to properties of the individual components themselves. In a nutshell, complex systems, or complexity, give rise to higher level properties which cannot be accounted for at lower levels of the system, in terms of the individual components or parts. And this is what we mean when we say emergent properties. Complex systems have other distinguishing features, like dynamic interactions, feedback loops, and hierarchical organization, and others. But for our purposes, we're most interested in emergence. There are many examples of complex systems with these emergent properties, such as economies, cities, the human body, the human brain, social networks, and also diseases and weather systems. Complexity is one reason why it is so hard to model the coronavirus and global climate change. Janan Ismail compares two different types of complex system, a colony of ants versus a modern ship. She takes the ship to be one whole system, including the vessel, the crew, the instruments, maps, and computer networks. And there is one crucial difference between a colony of ants and a modern ship. And this difference may be obvious. The ship has a centralized control. The ship is engaged in a self-governing process, collecting and synthesizing information, representing goals and selecting actions. The ship navigates the sea using maps and decisions are made through a hierarchical power structure which affects the ship's future actions. By contrast, the ants do not have a collective plan. Each ant is largely unaware of what the others are doing. And yet the system does produce physical structures and stores of food. But this is simply the illusion of centralized control. There is no more control in the system of ants than there is in the system of a free market economy. In a free market, individuals make individually motivated choices, but the behavior of these individual components self-organizes into predictable patterns. So there is a crucial difference between systems of ants and systems of sailors. The ants are merely self-organizing, whereas the sailors are self-governing. And to make this distinction, we have to ask questions like, can the system collect information about its environment? Can it process that information by reference to its own goals or needs? And can it actively select courses of action? Most importantly, where can we find the answers to these questions? Where do these answers reside? They do not reside at the level of individual components. At the level of fundamental physics, ants and sailors are all composed of fundamental particles 
and no distinction can be made. And similarly, the distinction cannot be made at the level of individual ants or individual sailors, since centralised control is a property of the system as a whole. So it is only at the level of the system, the whole colony of ants or the whole vessel, that we can make the distinction. And this is the crux of emergence. These emergent properties of centralised control are only visible at a certain level of description. That level is higher than the level of fundamental physics, and higher than the level of individual sailors or individual ants. These properties only exist or reside at the level of the system as a whole. All this talk of emergence and levels of description points back to one core realisation. That the universe exists at many different levels. There are many different levels of reality, each perhaps equally real. There is the level of particles, the level of molecules, the level of organisms, the level of ecosystems, and so on. To tackle this idea, the physicist Sean Carroll has coined the term poetic naturalism. It is naturalism because it accepts the scientific picture of reality. Our descriptions cannot include the supernatural, the spiritual, the non-physical, or any of that spooky stuff. But it is also poetic, because there are many ways of talking about the world. As Carroll says, when we tell the story of the world or of the universe, a wide range of descriptions are possible, appealing to different levels or different entities, like atoms or elephants or human selves. So that is Carroll's poetic naturalism, which says that many different levels of reality, or stories about reality, can be equally real. It is a short leap from emergence to human selves and freedom. A plausible scientific account of selves and freedom conceives them as entities which exist only at a certain level of description. Human selves emerge at sufficiently high levels, like the self-organising properties of ant colonies or the self-governing properties of ships. And human freedom is simply one of these properties. In the same way that a ship processes information, represents its goals and needs, and selects courses of action, so too does a human being enjoy the capacity to process information and to select actions. We should expect these capacities to appear gradually, since fish and amphibians are less sophisticated information processing systems than chimpanzees or humans. But on this view, human freedom is not some enigma or mystery. It is not something spiritual or non-physical, whereby the soul or the will of the human hijacks the physical body and plays the last note of a Mozart concerto. Rather, it is a property that an organism has with respect to its environment. Freedom is the property of being able to select actions on the basis of internally represented goals, as informed by information from the environment. The crew of a ship is not a blind automata or a zombie, which is running the code of its programming one line at a time. Rather, the system has a dynamical relationship with its environment. The crew of a ship that wants to sail to Perth has a wide menu of choices and actions, and can employ them in adaptive, dynamical and surprising ways. The same is true for human beings, and perhaps for chimpanzees, and, who knows, 
to a lesser degree for orangutans or elephants. This is Ismail's rather neat account of free will. She affirms free will in a way that is perfectly naturalistic, without appealing to anything spooky. Before we move on from free will, it's interesting to briefly consider an opposing view. Ismail says that science can account for free will, whereas Sam Harris says that science cannot account for free will. Harris makes this argument in his very short book, titled Free Will, and it's exceptionally easy to read as philosophy goes, although it's not very detailed or forensic. Harris mostly relies on everyday examples and anecdotes, which is not exactly rigorous, but it makes for highly readable philosophy. Harris's overall argument is worth reflecting on. He is a neuroscientist by training, and argues that a neuroscientific account of human action leaves no room for any free will. We can fully account for human action through either internal biochemical factors or external environmental factors. And when a human picks up a pen or plays a Mozart concerto, we can provide a complete causal picture in terms of biological causes and environmental causes. And because we have this full causal picture, there is no room for any free will to play any role. Harris argues that neuroscience can tell us why humans think and move and act, and free will is just an illusion, with no influence over our actions. He's fond of saying, it's tumours all the way down, which is to say, for every human behaviour, there is a physical, neuroscientific explanation, like a tumour that caused a person to have a propensity for violence. All actions result from biology, not from choice. There is another interesting aspect to Harris's argument that relies on introspection. Usually I'm opposed to arguments from introspection, since it asks the reader to reflect on their own intuitions, and it is not a rigorously empirical or scientific method. But here, Harris points to an interesting intuition that perhaps we can identify with. When we have a new thought, such as the sudden desire to make a cup of tea, where does this thought come from? Harris says that we are fooled into thinking that we are the author of our thoughts. We think that we, in some way, chose or willed our thoughts or traits or desires. But we are not authors. We are merely hosts or vessels. Thoughts burst into our awareness without warning or invitation and we are as much buffeted by these conscious reflections as by our unconscious biological processes. In brief, we do not choose or will our thoughts, and my feeling like the author of my consciousness is just another layer in this illusion of free will. Harris's argument is interesting to consider in opposition to Ismail's, but overall, I certainly think that Ismail makes the stronger case. For one, her argument relies less on anecdotes and introspection and more on scientific or naturalizing descriptions. And when it comes to the question of free actions, the evidence appears to support a strictly biological or dynamical ability of human beings to process information and to truly select different actions. I want to end this episode with a quick word on method, zooming out to the meta-perspective. 
These debates about self and free will are very old traditional debates in philosophy, and as such, they do not have conclusive answers. Listeners of this podcast will know that my approach to philosophy is to extrapolate to the most plausible theories, coming from an empirical starting point and mapping out the philosophical implications. As always, my arguments in this episode have been my attempt at mapping and extrapolation. And you may disagree with my reasoning. You may think that the evidence points elsewhere. I welcome any such disagreement. That is what philosophy is all about. The only thing I insist upon, and you're probably sick of hearing me say this, is that we must extrapolate from some empirical starting point. We must refer to our best theories about brains and complex systems when we're talking about self or free will or a great many other things. That is what naturalised or naturalistic philosophy is all about. I have no gripe with dissenters, except those who fail to provide any naturalistic basis for their claims. Free will is a very old philosophical debate, but it has been characterised at times by armchair philosophy. There are many strong and interesting theories, but there are others which are fishy or wacky or downright spooky. These arguments draw on souls and gods and other non-physical explanations. When you go forth and engage with new philosophy, I encourage you to ask the question, what is the basis for this claim? When we enter into conversations, we must always ensure that we are extrapolating carefully. So we've reached the end of today's episode, and as I mentioned before, this episode spiralled into a two-parter, so next time I'll be picking up where I left off. We have so many juicy topics left to cover. Today I started with the general project of naturalising philosophical topics, and then I talked about self and free will, as phenomena which exist only at certain levels of description. Next time I'll talk about time, concepts and meaning, and how they relate to frames of reference. These topics are even more fascinating and even more dear to my heart, so I hope you'll join me then. Extrapolator is written and edited by me, Jeff Allen. I also write and record the music, and you can find it on Spotify under the title Entry Music for a Podcast. The artwork was created by my twin brother, Hugh Allen, and you can find a reading list for this episode, as well as the other episodes in this series, on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell a friend, or share it, or leave a review online. I'm most active on Instagram, and my handle is at extrapolatorpod. These first few episodes are all about laying down my philosophical framework. In the future, I plan to move to an interview model, and growing the podcast is the best way to secure great guests. So thanks for listening and until next time.